Well, good evening. Uh, if you're new amongst us and you've just heard that Bible reading, you just must be thinking, my goodness, what have I come to? Uh, well, St Andrews, we, we are committed to uh, hearing all of the Bible and thinking very carefully about it. And uh, so we've arrived at uh, the Battle of Armageddon in our process of working through the book of Revelation. Those were nothing. The size of basketballs and Volkswagens. This new one you're tracking, how big? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. It's what we call a global killer, the end of mankind. Half the world will be incinerated by the heat blast, and the rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. Hitting a rock from the outside won't do the job. We are not out of the danger zones at all. There are still some 27,000 nuclear warheads over there. It's not very clear how to stop the effects of disastrous climate change. On the other hand, the ways to end nuclear war are known and relatively cheap. Armageddon. A Jerry Bruckheimer production directed by Michael Bay. There we go. Just over 20 years ago, Jerry Rockheimer brought us Armageddon. What a great movie that was. Thanks, Jerry. Some say Armageddon is really going to be a nuclear World War III. Uh, which has the effect of blowing up planet Earth and killing off the entire human race with the possible exception of Elon Musk, who's going in a little red sports car to Mars, uh, I think. Um, some say it will be climate change that ultimately ends this world. Others say, no, it'll be an asteroid the size of Texas. Um, everyone knows about Armageddon. It's, it's the war to end all wars. Others see it as a day of divine retribution, Finally, the good guys will beat the bad guys and take over world government. That's where our Bible reading takes us tonight, to this battle of Armageddon. So I hope you're strapped in and and, uh, ready for this. What we are going to see, though, is that Armageddon is actually all about justice. God's judgment on evil is completed. It's not a tragedy. It's actually a good thing. With Armageddon, the power of evil is defeated and everything now can be put right. Uh, You'll know that we are working our way through the book of Revelation. We're in the middle section uh, where there are four uh, parallel sections of seven things and uh, we uh, have seen that uh, at the end of the uh, seven seals, uh, when you get to the seventh seal, inside the seventh seal we find that there are seven trumpets and then at the end of the seven trumpets we had seven signs And now in chapter 15, we have the seven bowls, which seem to relate very strongly to the trumpets. There's a very tight connection here. And when we get to the seventh and final of these bowls, we actually launch into the ending part of the book of Revelation. We're taken to the final scenes that deal with judgment in a more detailed way. But for now, we're really... Uh, completing this final series of seven bowls. And each one in this series has a different angle on the same reality. We're looking at the present time through a different lens, if I may say it that way. So the seven seals at the very beginning showed us the kinds of things that will just keep on happening until Jesus returns. It's the continuing human struggle. There'll be political turmoil. There will be war. There will be famine. There will be sickness and death and martyrdom. Then the seven trumpets 
view those very same events as warnings. The trumpets sound the warning. Uh, You'll notice that in the trumpets uh, only portions of the earth are destroyed, one-third of this and one-third of that and so on. They're warnings. And then the third series of seven view those same events as signs, that is, signposts to heavenly realities. Dragons and beasts point to the spiritual realities behind the practice of emperor worship. Translating that same uh, reality to today, we would see the spiritual reality of worshipping perhaps world systems of power, something like that. And then as we come to this, this fourth series of seven bowls, we see our present time viewed through the lens of justice, God's justice. And the seven here are literally seven blows. They're like seven punches. Um, they are calamities, they are heavy afflictions that are sent from God. The NIV translate the, translates the word as plagues because each of them is an allusion to one of the plagues uh, that God visited upon Egypt uh, when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. We'll be coming back to a little bit more of that. But that's the background, and now we're ready to open up Revelation 15. So hopefully you have that open in front of you on your lap. Verse 1, at the beginning of this fourth seven, I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. Instinctively, we don't like the idea that God could be angry, that he would act on the basis of wrath. But as verse 1 says, although the bowls initiate plagues, they are more accurately called bowls of wrath. Wrath is simply a word that means very strong anger, hot anger. And with this last seven, God's wrath is complete. And so we want to ask, how can a loving God be angry? How does that work? Well, you see, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. It's because we care that we get angry. Let's imagine for a moment that uh, a husband is paying a little bit too much attention to another woman, that he's spending a little bit too much social time with that work colleague. It's getting a little bit flirtatious and it's happening right in front of his wife's eyes. What does she do? Well, if she just shrugs her shoulders and says, well, I'll do nothing, she's indifferent, we know that she doesn't value her marriage. And she doesn't really love her husband. But because she loves her husband and values her marriage, she's going to confront him. She's not going to put up with second best. She's going to get angry and we would want her to because she loves her husband. So the spouse of an adulterer is rightly angry, not indifferent. That's why Jesus gets angry when he's at the temple, when he overturns the tables of the money changers and he drives out the traders. He loves the people. He values the temple. There is such a thing as righteous anger. It's not random. It's not capricious. It is the anger of injustice. The greater the love, the hotter the anger. It's that anger that protects the weak from the bully. It's that anger that protects the innocent from the fraudster. God's love for humanity is so intense, 
so perfect and holy that when he is refused or ignored, his is a righteous anger. When humanity turns their affections and their worship to anything or anyone other than himself, he is rightly angry. It's it's not petulance. It is a holy, burning, passionate desire. He loves us like a good husband loves his wife. He will not passively allow his marriage to be trampled. And that's what this final seven is all about. The seven plagues represent God's anger over those who have rejected him. But before this final seven begins, we notice that God's people, all of God's people, represented by the 144,000, are already enjoying this victory. Um, We're sort of wrapping up the the loose ends of chapters 13 and 14. God's people are sealed and they're protected and they're singing victory songs beside the sea in Revelation 15, uh, 2 through 4. They're singing victory songs beside the sea just as in Moses' day when they sang God's victory after they crossed the Red Sea and God won his victory over the chariots of Pharaoh. That's why their song that they're singing is called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. So it seems that like Israel in Egypt, somehow God's people are set apart from these plagues that are about to be visited upon the rest. You'll see this parallel with Egypt grow. Next, in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 15, we see that seven angels are called forth and to bring their seven bowls of wrath. And they come out from the temple. That is, they come from the personal presence of God. The exercise of judgment here is God's. It's not random. It's not a kind of karma. It's not a kind of mechanistic transaction. God's judgment is personally exercised. And so when we come to the beginning of chapter 16, a voice comes out from the temple, presumably the voice of God, and orders that the bowls be now poured out. And as each bowl is poured out, we cannot help but noticing some very strong parallels with the seven trumpets, that second series of warnings that we read about before, except now the destruction is complete. It's not partial. But there is an even more important allusion that is being made with these seven bowls of wrath. We keep hearing the echoes of the book of Exodus. We're meant to be saying, oh yes, we know all about the plagues as God delivered his people out of Egypt. That's the pattern that this section of Revelation is following again and again. Pharaoh rejected God and so great judgments were brought upon his nation even as God was in the very act of saving his own people out from under there. And rather than go into all of the details of each of these seven bowls of wrath, each with its own Egypt-like plague, we could do that another time. We're just going to keep it fairly high level tonight. Um, I'll put up a a table up on the screen and you can pick that up off the net later on. But what we are going to focus on is these parallels between the seven bowls, the seven trumpets, and this Egypt exodus narrative. And so uh, I'm at chapter 16, verse 2. As the first angel pours judgment on those who worshipped the beast, referring, of course, to the emperor worship condemned back in Revelation 14. Painful sores, constant torments are decreed for those who buy into the false worship imposed by the powerful of this world. 
It was emperor worship then, but there is always going to be some contemporary equivalence. This is how apocalyptic literature works. It was Nero in the mid-60s AD. It was Domitian in 95 when Revelation was written. It was Decian in the 200s and so forth. Whenever and wherever the state has enforced worship or religion, it's pretty much the same as this. Sometimes the state has enforced no religion. For example, Stalinist Russia or uh, Cambodia under Pol Pot. I think more tellingly for us is that it is not the state who compels worship but popular opinion, perhaps the media. We feel compelled to think their way, to adopt their view, to call out anyone with a view that is different to the conforming view. We, we face the weapons of social outrage and indignation <coughs> and shaming. <coughs> Excuse me while I battle my cold. We are in danger, I think, of being pressed into the world's mould. Those who worship power and wealth and popularity are judged by this first plague. Let's keep it moving. The second plague, uh, all of the ocean is turned to blood. The third plague, all of the rivers are turned to blood and all of the sources of water turned to blood. And then something unusual happens. Not that all of the water turning to blood is not unusual, but I say unusual because there's an intrusion into this series of seven. I'm looking at verses 5 through 7 of chapter 16 where the angel in charge of the waters says, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. What's interesting to me here is the commentary on the justice of God. The angel declares in verses 5 and 6 that God is just in his judgments. As horrible as all of these plagues seem to be, God is being fair. And again in verse 6, those who have persecuted and tortured and killed God's people are getting what they deserve. It's no surprise then in verse 7 that the martyrs under the altar from Revelation chapter 6 cry out, true and just are your judgments. Somehow as God's judgment is being revealed, as his wrath against sin is displayed, those looking on say, yes, this is good. Justice at last. I don't pretend to be an expert in justice. There are others in the room who are perhaps more qualified to say this than I. But I think we live in a time and a place which prefers a kind of justice that I'm going to call utilitarian. Utilitarian justice aims to achieve some future benefit. We respond to the bad by trying to tame it and to reform it. That's why we have a Department of Corrective Services. It's not called a Department of Jails. It's Department of Corrections. Utilitarian justice aims to rehabilitate the offender. Sounds pretty good in theory, but I think there are some problems with the system. In practice, there is no way of knowing if you've incarcerated a person long enough for them to be rehabilitated. How would you know that? In fact, the statistics of criminal reoffending are pretty frightening. In New South Wales, 51% of prisoners released during 2014-15 returned 
to jail within two years, 51 per cent. And if we're in the United States, that figure is closer to 70 per cent. Think about that. Within two years, more than half of the people who have been rehabilitated are back in jail. Actually, I think this kind of justice is much worse if you are a victim of the crime. If it is determined that the criminal has indeed been reformed and that they're not going to re-offend and they're released back into the community in just a few years, if you are the parents of that abused child or that murdered wife, that innocent person who had their life savings taken from them, you would be asking, how fair is that? Why doesn't the punishment fit the crime? Why isn't there some kind of equivalence that I could see? And the answer that we get is, well, we don't think that they're going to do it again. That's utilitarian justice. But God's justice, as we see it here in the Bible, is different in nature. It is retributive. That is, instead of being oriented to what the criminal may or may not do in the future, retributive justice is oriented toward what the criminal has concretely done in the past. God's retribution aims to give an equal punishment for the offence committed. Nothing more, nothing less, the punishment fits the crime. And if God is real, and if he is the creator of all things, then God has the right to determine what's right and what's wrong and to judge on the basis of it. And that's actually what we're seeing here in Revelation 16. It's why the saints who are standing beside the sea in chapter 15 sing, Just and true are your ways. Your righteous acts have been revealed. This next part is very important. We don't know the details of God's justice for each person. That's not our place to enter into. We are not able to judge a person who knew nothing of God, the person whose moral capacities were diminished. We should be careful not to say anything that the Bible doesn't say. It's not our place to declare God's justice left and right. Instead, we can be assured that when God's wrath and his judgments are revealed, we too will affirm that his ways are true and his justice is good and he is fair and we can actually take comfort from that. We will actually praise God for his justice when we see it. And if you are the victim of injustice, you can know that God will take care of your situation fully. And you will say, yes, Lord, you have done right. Verse 8, we come to the fourth bowl of wrath, which impacts the sun. Here the sun burns and scorches, but with the trumpets and in Exodus, it was, it was darkness. Uh, just a side note, by the way, um, when we come to these parallels that we're highlighting here in apocalyptic literature, all of these images and symbols that we're talking about don't really refer to real events, actual events. You know, we're not expecting that one day all of the ocean will indeed turn to blood. Uh, We're not expecting that there will be plagues of boils spreading across the earth. They're a picture. They're taking us back consciously to Exodus every time, assuring us that God is in control. As then... So now, God is able and he will deliver his people and there will be justice, just as there was then. And so in verse 8, we notice the response of the people 
to these terrifying judgments. You see in verse 8, they refuse to repent and glorify God. Again in verse 11, they curse the God of heaven and refuse to repent. The third and final time, verse 21, with the final bowl of wrath, they curse God. So it seems that for the hearts of some people, there is no rehabilitation, no correction. They're like Pharaoh who saw the terrifying signs of all of the plagues and he heard the warnings of Moses, but still he hardened his heart. In the book of Exodus, we're actually given both sides of that truth. Pharaoh refused God's call to free Israel. He hardened his own heart and at the same time, we're also told God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The principles of free will and election are operating together. They seem to be ultimately compatible. Of their own free will, humans choose to harden their hearts and reject and curse God. At the same time, without limiting human freedom to choose, God hardens some and brings others to repentance, all in accordance with his will. But the Bible seems to teach both of these truths in parallel. And so in humble faith, we try and hold them together as best we can. The fifth plague in Revelation 16.10, the angel pours his bowl on the throne of the beast so that his kingdom is plunged into darkness. This leads to agony and to great physical torment. The people curse God because of their sores. No one escapes, just as all of the Egyptians cried out in protest about the flies and the frogs and the boils. It's agony for all, from the greatest to the least, except God's people. Remember, they're still standing beside the sea, singing their songs of victory. Then we come to the sixth angel, who pours his wrath on the river Euphrates. The river Euphrates functioned as a kind of border, the end of the civilised world, if you will. The river actually protected the Romans from those wild and barbaric Parthians who lived beyond the river. When the river dries up, though, suddenly all of those uncivilised barbarians can invade easily. And so they feared the kings of the east and they feared them greatly that they would be called to battle against them. And then we see that the evil frog-like spirits, we're back in Egypt again with frogs, gathers not just the kings of the east but gathers all the kings of the world. In their vast array, they gather for battle. But it is not God's people whom they are fighting against. Remember, they're safely beside the sea. All of the rulers of the world gather together in opposition to God. And so this sixth bowl develops all of the tension of any good Armageddon film. We can see it coming. We know it's going to happen. The forces coming against God are terrifying. They seem insurmountable. But why is Armageddon the scene of this battle? Literally, it's the, it's the town or the hill of Megiddo. You can go there today. Why this? There are many uh, references to uh, Megiddo, the, the plain of Megiddo and so forth in, in the Old Testament. But one in particular, Zechariah chapter 12 we see that this place is a place of mourning for sin. What's happened is that all of the surrounding nations have gathered to overthrow Jerusalem and Judea. They are completely outnumbered, they are completely outgunned and what happens is the people turn to God in repentance. 
they see their sins and they mourn and they grieve. And their mourning is said to be like the weeping of one of the towns of Megiddo. So that's where the reference is. And so in Zechariah, instead of God's people being decimated by great hordes, the nations are actually thrown into panic and disorder. The more they seek to harm God's people, the more they seem to harm themselves. That's the, that's the background. Why use this picture of Armageddon? Well, Zechariah 12 is in the background. So we come then to the final bowl. What will happen? Here in Revelation, the seventh and final bowl is about to be poured out. Let's read it. I'm at verse 17 of chapter 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. After all of the great build-up of armies and forces arrayed against God for the battle of Armageddon, after all of the tension and all of the drama, God says, Done. And it's over almost before it started. Victory. Of course, there's the attendant pyrotechnics and earthquakes and peals of thunder and so forth, but they're just sort of like an exclamation mark at the end of it all. Just as God created this cosmos with a word, let there be light, and there was light. So this battle is concluded with a single word, done. And just as Jesus completed his work on the cross with a single word, finished, he said, and then he gave up his spirit, John's Gospel. So here, the final battle is won with just a word. It is done. And all of the created order looks on and reels in awe as God's judgment is carried out upon evil. God's power cannot be resisted. The full implications of this judgment are going to be unpacked for us in Revelation chapter 17 through 20. We haven't arrived there yet. What we should know, though, is that where we are today, the Bible is saying that right now there is time when anyone can come to God. He is holding back final judgment until that day. Anyone can come to God and be assured of a warm welcome. Now is the time for mercy, the time for forgiveness. When Jesus won the victory on the cross, he could have wrapped it all up then, but he didn't. He delayed his return so that we would turn to him. God offers his mercy now, even in the midst of a dark world. In the sovereignty of God, there is a limit to his patience. Injustice, suffering, illness, death, they must ultimately be ended And the evil powers that cause them must be judged. Friends, what we need to know tonight is that Armageddon is not a tragedy, a bad end to a good world. Instead, Armageddon is justice for all who have opposed God. And this is good. Evil has an end. God says, done. And it is. Will you pray with me? Our God and Father, as we sit before you in our weakness and in our partial understanding, 
We ask that your spirit continue to help us understand your justice, understand your holy love and your righteousness. And Father, in these days before your judgment comes, please will you have mercy. May your grace extend to many. May they turn to Christ and find new life that you so freely give. Dear God, may your grace and mercy triumph all the more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.